from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. USDA cuts yields but fines corn acres. I certainly do think more cuts are uh, yet to come. I think the market's starting to maybe sense that a little bit as well. But don't bank on more yield cuts in October or even an October report at all. The finish line doesn't seem to be close for the farm bill. I'm really, really worried about whether it's going to be done by the end of the year. Why one economist says no farm bill could create financial pain. Three grain bin entrapments in rural areas all with remarkable rescues. It was a non-stop roller coaster for those couple hours. Your mind is just spinning. We were cutting holes, we were making sure everything's off. We'll show you the tools that your local fire department needs in our Bex Day Ever special. And in John's world. The entrapment dangers start right now. Now for the news, we've seen crop conditions continue to drop in the past few weeks as we head into harvest. And now USDA is scaling back its crop forecasts. The agency in its latest supply and demand report once again making cuts to yield. USDA is now projecting a 173.8 bushel per acre corn yield. That's down 1.3 bushels from last month, with production now forecast to be 15.1 billion bushels. That's actually up less than 1% from last month, with USDA saying a greater harvested area more than offsets that cut in yield. And that surprised the market. It's also up 10% from last year. Soybeans, those are now forecast to be 50.1 bushels an acre, down slightly less than a bushel from last month. Production is projected to be 4.1 billion bushels, down a percent from last month and down three percentage points from last year. Well, with the dry weather, it's happening again. Water levels on the Mississippi River are low right now. This comes after last year's historic low water levels on the important river used to move U.S. ag products to export markets. Now, transportation officials telling us the river levels in some areas of the Mississippi are actually lower now than they were a year ago, which could potentially shut down the river during the harvest season. While water levels on the Mississippi River have not hit the historic lows of October of last year, readings in some areas right now are already lower than the same time last year. When you look at places like Memphis, Tennessee, we're actually about 10 feet lower right now than we were at the same period last year, and obviously, Memphis was one of the areas that was most adversely affected by the low water conditions in 2022. Uh, the stage is unfortunately set for the problem uh, becoming even worse this year. That is restricting barge loading rates by up to 25%, and it's also decreasing the number of barges that can move in tow. As a result, barge freight rates have soared, making the U.S. less competitive on the export front. Crews are still looking into what caused an explosion at ADM's big facility in Decatur, Illinois. ADM releasing a statement saying four employees remain in the hospital after being injured in the explosion on Sunday evening. In total, eight people were hurt. Midweek, ADM told our U.S. Farm Report affiliate WAND that it was continuing to assess the damage but was in the process of restarting operations at the corn plant and was expecting to resume normal operation levels this week. 
And possible damage from Hurricane Lee will just add to the already record-breaking total the U.S. has racked up this year from weather-related catastrophes. The National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration says so far this year, the U.S. has had 23 disasters that cost at least $1 billion each. That passes 2020's previous record of 22 disasters. NOAA says there's been nearly $58 billion worth of damage in Hurricane Idalia. Costs have yet to be tallied into that. Well, time isn't just running out to keep the federal government up and going, but it's also running out to write a new farm bill by the September 30th deadline. And while an extension is likely, one economist thinks it could be two years until we see a new farm bill, which could create financial pain for farmers. According to Texas A&M's Joe Outlaw, the biggest hurdle for getting a farm bill passed from the ag side is increasing the reference price within Title I. And while the committees are working around the clock trying to get a farm bill written, he just doesn't see it happening before the deadline at the end of the month. And he says if a new farm bill isn't written by February, a long-term extension could be in place. And he doesn't think we'll see a new farm bill actually written for two more years after the upcoming election. Within two years, the prices are going to be below your cost of production unless something happens on the, on the input side that breaks levels down. And that means we're not going to be making any money. And then the people are going to be losing their minds. And, and we shouldn't have to wait till that problems. But unfortunately, the way things work in Washington these days tends to have to have a crisis. Outlaw says the price tag to increase the reference price for all ag commodities by 10% is 20 to $25 billion. To do so, 20% would cost more than $50 billion. And with the current environment in the House, with legislators clamping down on spending, he thinks it's a battle with no quick resolution. All right, that's it for the news. Well, as harvest ramps up, drought is now consuming 54% of the corn crop, 56% of sorghum, and 59% of spring wheat. Yeah, it's dry. So what areas have the best chances for rain? We'll have a check of your forecast coming up next. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when experience meets expertise. Pioneer, what's next happens here. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new 1200 series Big Dog Forage Boxes now feature new heavy-duty dual gearbox-driven apron chains and are available in 26 and 30-foot models. Find out more about the Big Dog Boxes at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht. Matt, it continues to be dry and that's sprouting some major problems. That includes along the Mississippi River where levels are critically low, putting barge traffic at risk right at harvest. I mean, the worst possible time. So looking at those areas that are in drought, what areas do have the best chances of rain? Well, of course, the main focus is on Hurricane Lee and the impacts it's bringing to New England. Want to put in a perspective on where we are in terms of the tropical frequency going forward. You see the red line now both with tropical storms and hurricanes, but also major hurricanes tends to peak as we get into the middle of September, actually earlier than September as today, as we get to the middle of September, we start to come back down. Now you just use this as a guide. What this tells you is that uh, there is still uh, enough out there in the Atlantic, enough climate data uh, to support more tropical systems forming uh, all the way up into November 1st. This is not a forecast, just kind of a general idea that we're past the peak. But as we always talk about, when it comes to hurricanes, tropical systems, it only takes one 
you know, for it to be a bit of a problem in your location. So again, there's a look at the tropical frequency. When we look at the jet stream uh, over the rest of the weekend and next week. Uh, one big thing is going to set up across the United States. We get uh, Hurricane Lee out of here. And what's going to end up happening in the wake of that system is we go zonal with uh, the winds or the jet stream uh, more parallel uh, to the west and east rather than up and down. So this is jet stream on Monday. Watch what happens the middle part of the week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Start to see a trough, this U digging back down on the west side of the United States. As this dives down, you're going to get what's called ridging back across the United States. This pattern is indicative of dry and above average temperatures. And that's nearly two thirds of the United States with this ridge and these height lines scooting back up here to the north. So big ridge developing. It's uh, Thursday, Friday and Saturday uh, with a trough wet weather, cooler air uh, for the West Coast. And this kind of pattern that we're seeing in the jet stream is very typical for this time of year. As we enter fall and get um, closer to winter, start to see more push to the north and more pull to the south with the jet stream uh, going forward. So just keep that in mind that we are expecting it to be drier uh, than normal or at least close to that once we get done with Hurricane Lee uh, for two thirds of the United States on the East Coast. Different story with that trough digging across the United States back here towards the West and even into the Plains looking at wetter than normal conditions between September 21st and September 27th. Again, that's a precipitation outlook in terms of the temperatures matches up with what we just talked about with that jet stream. You got the trough and the cooler air all through the West Coast and then the heat, the warmth for two thirds of the United States underneath that ridge. Thanks, Matt. Well, analysts think USDA may make even more cuts to yield, but don't bank on it in October. Why? We'll find out from Dan Bossy and Chip Nellinger next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Dan Bossy as well as Chip Nellinger joining us this weekend. Big USDA WASDE report earlier in the week. Dan, we saw some cuts to yield, but USDA found some acres this late in the game how do you find acres? That's a question a lot of producers want to know. Well, you know, it's uh, it's all related to the farmer and what they report in terms of participation in FSA. So this is the uh, culmination of FSA data and then uh, uh, NAS data comes together. They true themselves up. And in this case, we found that particularly in North Dakota, farmers planted a lot more corn. And so that's why corn acres were up almost 800,000 acres. Also found a little bit of soybeans. We used to find this in the October report, but a couple of years ago, they were able to get the data earlier. And so it's now coming forward to September. At the same time, we are seeing some cuts to yield. Chip, in some of these early yield reports that you're hearing, considering that we are seeing things dry down so quickly, do you think more cuts are yet to come? Yeah, I, I certainly do think more cuts are uh, yet to come. I think the market's starting to maybe sense that a little bit as well. Now, it's too early on in bean harvest to really get a sense, but it was tremendously dry from the 1st of October really on into uh, the first part of this uh, past week here. So uh, I think that uh, that dryness is going to take the top end off. Producers are also saying, hey, my corn crop, it's not just drying down rapidly, it's dying, and that's never good for top end yield. As we see that show up in test weights though, Dan, has the USDA already started to incorporate that issue into their yield estimates? They have. So USDA actually pulls ears and pulls pods 
they'll pull more ears for the September report, more pods for the October report, but they will then mechanically dry them down. So we get a sense of what a test weight is doing. This will be a year because of what Chip has just said that test weight will be off significantly in terms of corn and then soybean seed size will be down, which is 33% of yield. So to that point, I think as you go forward to October, November, we are looking for yields to come off just a little bit from what USDA indicated on uh, Tuesday. So Chip, not only did we have the September WASDE report, but now we have the grain stocks report coming up at the end of the month. Last year, that was when we saw a big drop in harvested acres because of drought in Kansas and, and, and those areas. You know, what are some potential surprises that maybe you're watching for in this September uh, grain stocks report? There's just so much bearishness around demand right now, particularly corn demand, that I don't think the expectations are going to be for something that uh, comes out wildly bullish. Now, uh, you know, there's always the, uh, the the potential surprise there and they're hard to peg. But I think that the market kind of looks past that, assuming there's not some major shock there. Uh, more to what we were talking about earlier, and that is, are there further yield cuts coming? And is demand starting to pick up a little bit is going to be a big question in the market's mind in the fourth quarter. Okay, Dan, well, currently, what is your yield product projection for both corn and soybeans? We are sitting at 171 bushels per acre on corn based on our analysis and 49 bushels on soybeans. So we're looking for another drop of a bushel of acre on beans, another two and a half on corn. Chip, I know that Blue Reef Ag Marketing does a survey as well. So Chip, with the Blue Reef Agri Marketing, your survey, what did growers say? Yeah, our first crack at it here uh, just a week ago um, was uh, in the upper 160s, right around 169 uh, on corn yield. We didn't ask uh, thus uh, thus far uh, on beans because it was too early. We'll pick that up in uh, October as we get to a month out. And maybe the government closed down. Uh, we saw President Biden uh, talking of that this week. So I'm really worried that a budget package isn't reached and that USDA data may stop if the government comes to a, a halt, if you will, as funds are not available. Are the tides turning when it comes to demand as well as looking at the drought picture? Could it impact barge traffic? And what do growers need to be thinking about as we head now really into the heat of harvest? We'll talk about all of that with Dan as well as Chip later on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Brand, technology-driven nutrition that feeds your crop. Well, we're switching things up this weekend. John's World will be in our next half hour for our special edition. But an electric idea when it comes to hydroelectricity. John Phipps explains in customer support this weekend. Robert Benson has an idea for storing water to, for hydroelectric plants. Place a large holding tank cistern at the top of a 200-foot tower just offshore in Washington State collect rainfall and periodic, periodically release the accumulated water to escape by way of turbines just above the ocean's surface. Uh, this is just an excerpt of his much more detailed plan. He is referring sort of to pump storage hydroelectricity, which to my surprise is by uh, far the largest method uh, in the U.S. currently used for uh, storing electrical energy. During periods of high demand, water flows from a dam through turbo generators to produce power. When demand is low, water is pumped back up to the reservoir feeding the generators. Or a special reservoir is built for water to be pumped to and then drained from when demand is high. 
There is an efficiency loss of 15 to 20 percent in this curve or in this circle, but the idea is used because of the old infamous duck curve, which demonstrates how capacity can be minimized by taking advantage of the wildly varying prices during the day. Here is an updated one for the most extreme duck curve, which is California. All areas of the U.S. have a similar curve, especially in July, which is the yellow one. Since I talked about the duck curve earlier this year, the curve has become only more pronounced and with a longer period of excess supply, at which time electricity is very cheap and can even have a negative price, which then can be stole, sold, stored and sold uh, during the head of the duck, so to speak. Currently, utilities are installing massive battery storage to help flatten the duck. In fact, in Australia, they are heading toward putting the duck to sleep with solar power and batteries working together. The flatter the curve, the less generating capacity is needed from fossil fuels or other sources. Even though the pump storage comprises over 90% of all electricity storage today, it still re represents only about 3% of our demand. There are closed loop systems wherever there are hills, and new systems are still being built. Bob's idea of storage at sea in a large structure is essentially just another hydroelectric dam, and the water that would be used will decrease supplies for existing hydroelectric dams. There's no free lunch or professional motion system for, to make hydroelectricity. But the good news is all types of electrical storage are rapidly scaling up. And we are heading toward putting our duck to sleep. Thank you, John. Well, when one Michigan man lost his beloved wife last year, he knew he needed to find a way to keep her memory alive. How her tractor became the perfect canvas. That's in Tractor Tales next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Firestone Ag. Save instantly when you buy two or more eligible Firestone Ag tires during the Go Harvest Rewards promotion. Visit FirestoneAg.com or contact your local certified Firestone Ag dealer. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week we're off to Southwest Michigan and we're going to check out an Alice Chalmer 7050. I bought this tractor in uh, 1976 at uh, auction sale of Buchanan Co-ops. And April was at her mother's. And when I went to her mother's and told her I bought it, she bawled like a baby. Didn't know how we was going to pay for it. April was my wife. She got cancer, died in 2019. And then we farmed with it. And then we took the cab off and we started pulling it. And she she wanted to pull it and it become her tractor. I pull it and don't let the kids pull it because she didn't want it broke. So you pull, you pull it still in memory of her, right? Right. I pulled it Monday here at the fair. I didn't get first place, so I'd probably catch heck about that, but I got fifth. Well, I just do whatever I need to do to help the family. I, I wasn't necessarily a, a big into pulling anymore. I helped my dad with the, the graphics here, pulling her tractor. 
just help out where I can. You know, my brother Bill Jr. and the rest of the family, they're, they're the big pullers of the family, and they keep the tradition going. They say it's a great memory of my mom and the tractor that she pulled. She loved to pull. We got a D21 a super farm, and she pulled that once. She'd go to a pull whether I went or not. I'll keep it until I die, and I hope the kids keep it longer. She was proud of it, didn't want it broke. Didn't want nobody uh, abusing her tractor. We'll keep pulling it and try to try to uh, win like she did and keep putting it in the parades. Uh, like I said, everybody likes to see it. and It's a great memory of my mom and what she loved to do. Grain bin entrapments increased 44% last year alone. Some of those resulted in remarkable wool rescues. During the next half hour, we'll share with you stories of survival and one rescue that put a man on a mission to spark hope and change. We'll show you as our special edition of Beck's Day Ever happens next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. This special edition of U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Bex. From farmer's first pass in the field to the final one at harvest, it's a game plan rooted in faith and belief. Bex Hybrids is with you every turn because both on and off the field, we're all farmers at heart. See why at BexHybrids.com. Farming is ranked the sixth most dangerous job. It's two times as deadly as serving in law enforcement and five times more deadly than being a firefighter. One culprit could be grain and bin entrapments. Bex Hybrids decided to step in to raise awareness through a series of stories called Bex Day Ever. Nate Fairley, a regional business manager for Bex Hybrids and a volunteer firefighter and first responder in Gibbon, Minnesota, explains why. It's a really big focus here at Bex because, um, you know, we work with farmers and we see this as an opportunity or a platform to help raise awareness um, in the fire and rescue industry, uh, awareness is the best means of safety and life-saving measures. Um, so by sharing these stories, uh, we're also, we're just, we're raising that grain bin safety awareness for farmers. Our first story this weekend takes us to Gibbon, Minnesota. A call came in and as Andrew McRae shows us this weekend, it's a call to which Nate responded, but little did he know that one call could spark a new calling for his life and one for change. We've always helped my dad farm, and on that day, the augers were running, and we figured corn was transferring. Didn't see my dad's truck, so we thought that maybe he went to town and left it, this everything transfer. We came back, and we heard that the augers were running empty. I'm like, something's going on, and all of a sudden I heard, light helps, help, help. And we ran up the bin, and there he was, and the corn was up to his neck. He was just, his head was sticking out. Then I called on 911. We arrived on scene and I immediately climbed up to the top of the bin to see uh, what was needed. And then I saw Dana in there working on, on Jerry. They wanted me inside that bin next to him. He was pretty much chest on down. We were just trying to dig him out to start with. We put on oxygen right away, that dust in the, in the bin got pretty out of control. It was a non-stop roller coaster for those couple hours. Your mind is just spinning. We were cutting holes. We were making sure everything's off. 
there was a lot of grain on the opposite side of that grain bin that, that continued to flow down at us like, like avalanches. It was a couple times that uh, we had to stop and just say, we're not winning. What are we gonna do? I remember him looking at me saying, my foot is in the auger. We knew right then and there that we had a lot of grain to move to get to the point where we could work on detangling him from that. I gave a good buddy of mine a call and I said, we need your grain back, bring it over to Jerry's. He says, okay, we'll be on our way. And that grain back was just the key in working right around the victim. It was so fast. It sped that process up by easily 30, if not 45 minutes. With help from God, the first responders, and the community, Jerry's life was saved. Due to his harrowing experience and the high percentage of entrapment fatalities, Gibbon Fire and Rescue realized they needed a grain vac of their own and a means of transporting it quickly to a scene. They called the project R3, Rural Rescue Response. This is the first of its kind. To our knowledge today, nobody has built a custom trailer that has a vac mounted to it for the grain bin entrapments and the storage capacity to hold all of those tools for rural rescues. But I don't want it to be one of a kind. I want it to be the first of its kind. That custom trailer is something Nate is trying to get to more fire and rescue departments. And as you'll see later in the show, it's a tool that would have been useful for one rescue last year. But first, a quick break. And then what about demand for grain this year? Are the tides starting to turn? We'll ask our analysts coming up next. Welcome back to the U.S. Farm Report. All right, we talked a lot about supply in the first roundtable. Now looking at demand. Jim, how concerned are you about this low, these low river levels on the Mississippi River? Yeah, river levels continue to drop along the Mississippi River. It is concerning. Uh, Dan mentioned uh, earlier there, there may be some uh, rains in the forecast here. Hopefully they can keep that river open. As long as they can continue barge traffic, certainly they'll uh, load them uh, you know, less full than they normally would, but that will help keep grain flowing. If there's a total shutdown, it's probably not at the right time here as we get into the gut of harvest. And, you know, it's definitely a concern. It could be a, a temporary basis issue, but hopefully there's just enough rain to keep the, the river open from St. Louis South. Well, now that we're into the new marketing year, we saw some more big buys from China, but it's not just the U.S. that China's buying from. So, Dan, as you look at how historic some of these purchases are, how big are they? Well, China's uh, imported a record amount of world soybeans, as USDA reported, at about 101 million metric tons this year. We think that number will be 105 next year. We have an industry that always underestimates Chinese protein demand, so we're expecting that China will be a big buyer going forward. But what really surprises me is the amount of corn China has bought down in the Brazilian market. By looking at Brazilian loadings and vessels that are nominated to go to China, we can already add up around 9 million metric tons on their way to 15 or 16 million metric tons of corn from Brazil. This is massive. And so the world demand picture is relatively robust. It's just that they're not buying it from the United States. And so that gives me encouragement that world demand is very strong for grain. It just needs to shift northward to the United States. Chip, do you feel like the tide is turning a bit? Yeah, I, I do. I've never been in the camp of, of this uh, bearish mentality on bean demand. Uh, we just have not seen evidence of that so far. You know, China's been a buyer of U.S. beans along with unknown. We've been selling it even at higher levels a few weeks ago. So I've never been on the bearish bandwagon as far as bean demand goes. I think that world wheat trade is starting to pick up a little bit. I think that we're uh, a little uh, more evenly priced against the world on wheat. And according to some of our forward bookings, it should be that uh, the case that corn 
U.S. corn starts picking up in competitiveness all through harvest as well. And you've seen that maybe a slight indication of that the last couple of weeks with some of these sales we've seen. Dan, we were in Texas earlier this week and we knew it was dry, but until you fly in and you see how brown it is and there was just no pasture, no grass for these cattle right now, how long do you think until we start rebuilding this herd, seeing that the drought is such a significant issue still? I'm, I'm, I'm doubtful that the herd, I mean, we're seeing a little bit around the edges. Cow slaughter is down about 8% this year relative to last year, but you know, we're not retaining heifers yet, which is a big component we need to do in terms of the cattle herd. So with that in mind, I think that cattle cycle is getting stretched. The lack of feed is definitely a, a, a problem down in the Southern Plains. And as I think forward, capital costs, just looking at buying a feeder at $250, you know, is something that's really going to weigh on the banker. So as I think about that expansion, it's going to be a long time in the future, which tells me that the cattle market's going to stay very strong for a long period of time, at least another couple of years. Yeah, the supply side is very bullish. The demand side, Chip, you know, when you look at energy prices and how they continue to climb and the pinch that it is putting on Americans, are you concerned about that demand piece moving forward? I am concerned. And you look at the export sales on beef for the last few weeks, they've really uh, kind of hit a, a, a bump in the road. You really have to question the consumer going forward. I don't disagree with what Dan's saying, um, you know, as far as it takes a while to turn um, the tide and start retaining heifers and building the herd. But the problem is if we start to do that at the same time, we really curtail demand because of record high prices. It's really a bad situation. So I, I don't think that's something we have to worry about uh, tomorrow or next week, but it is something certainly that is in the back of my mind as a concern going forward over the next few few months here. Dan, thank you, Chip. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Stay with us. We'll have much more on U.S. Farm Report when we come back. Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com. As we continue our Bex Day Ever series focused on rural rescues and grain bin entrapments, our next story takes us to Wilmington, Ohio, a quiet community in southwestern Ohio that was sent into chaos just six months ago as a call at 1130 a.m. on March 23rd, 2023, is one the Wilmington Fire Department will never forget. Myself and the on-duty crew were out the door very quickly. Uh, we we're on the radios calling for mutual aid for grain bin rescue equipment along with manpower because we just knew it, it could be a big incident. The victim was a 76-year-old employee at a farm in Sabina, roughly seven miles away. When we got the call, it was that he was trapped to his waist. They came back and said he's now trapped up to his neck, and we were only about halfway there. I arrived on scene the same time as the chief. I went, got down into the grain bin. I was more of a safety director on the inside, just making sure that all these guys were tied off and doing what they needed to do. When I first entered the bin, I just tried to keep him calm, asked him questions, um, realized instantly that he was in a predicament unlike what we'd ever encountered since he was sitting against the back of the bin. I knew it was going to be hard for us to get him out. We weren't able to get a tube around the back of him due to him being so close to the bin, so we tried to make a U around him, but it wasn't near as stable as a circle. We fought that the whole time. The guys inside were working against this avalanche of grain every time they tried to do something. 
It just kept coming down on them. So they ended up having, instead of building a tube, they were basically building walls. The grain was very hard. We couldn't drive the tubes far enough into the grain to be able to be stable. We eventually did cut holes in the side of the bin to relieve some of that avalanche, that mountain of corn. He was conscious and talked to us the whole time, but we wanted him to stay mentally uh, with us and not panic. We needed to get a grain back. Um, I knew a local farmer that had one. I don't know who called him, but within five or 10 minutes, that grain back was there. It significantly increased the speed in which we were getting grain out from around him. When the, the grain back showed up was probably when we knew this was coming to a, a quick end. I never had the feeling that we weren't going to get him out, and maybe that was being naive on my part. After five hours of hard struggle, the rescuers freed the victim from the bin. We're all just glad it was over. Everybody was tired and cold. It was a very stressful, very long day. We had farmers bringing grain vacs, trucking the grain to the, the terminal. Uh, the terminal stayed open past their normal operating hours. The whole farming community, agricultural community came together to, to make this rescue success. As stories like these continue to ripple across farm country, grain bin entrapments continue to occur way too many with tragic endings. So why are grain bin entrapments still happening today? It's a question we wanted to get John Phipps's thoughts on. That happens next. Well, as we told you earlier, grain bin entrapments shot up 44% last year, hitting the highest in a decade. And as John Phipps reminds all of us, harvest is when those tragedies often start. Tynes report today on the continuing problem of grain entrapment accidents likely brings shudders of there but for the grace of God memories to many of us older farmers. The efforts by rescue workers are crucial, but recognizing why this tragedy persists deserves a lot of attention too. Grain bin deaths for the most part uh, really begin now as harvest starts. The primary driver is just storing grain too wet. This seems easily avoidable, but circumstances rarely make it easy to eliminate risky decisions. Pressure to get stuff out of the field can be immense. Simply saying, don't store wet corn, is so obvious as to be effortlessly forgotten. The characteristics of grain going into the bin, however, dominate the causal factors for entrapment. We can do better. First, recalculate the value of the of tile, planting dates, and hybrid selection. Dry down, stalk strength, kernel integrity, and disease prevention factors may mean a little fewer, but a lot safer bushels in the bin. If forced to crowd moisture limits to keep the combine going, don't consider harvest done until you get at least some of the marginal corn moved. Core your bins as soon as possible. Expecting yesterday's spreaders to keep up with today's combines is just unrealistic. Stored corn condition trumps market timing. Bite the grain drying, shrink, and carrying charge bullets to unload those chances for hazards. If the smallest doubt arises during harvest about storability, listen to those instincts. Reevaluate the price of astronomically expensive newer machinery. 
not just better monitoring and grain handling and threshing, but the automatic ability to adjust for grain quality to aid air, uh, bin airflow has significant value when balanced against right risk to life. The older the bin, the drier the corn needs to be. My rule of thumb is older than 20 years means only number two corn. Don't enter the bin from the top, period. Poke with a stick, but not your foot. Check for crusting. Entrapment deaths risks are loaded into bins along with unsuitable corn. Getting away with poor practices for years can dull our sense of danger. Most importantly, remember entrapment deaths tend to happen to younger farmers who can still climb into the bin. Endangering these, our most valuable farm assets, is economic absurdity when comparing the tiny gains to the heartbreaking losses. Thanks, John. Well, with drought and other grain quality issues, Nate fears farmers are at even more risk of grain bin entrapments this coming year. But there are ways to help local fire departments with successful rescues. We'll tell you how you can help next. In August of 2022, an Iowa man was trapped in a grain bin for nearly two hours. It was a frightening experience, but one with a miraculous ending. Nate takes us to Moravia, where the man who survived is grateful to the fire department's volunteers who helped save his life. We pull up, um, grain bin doors open. I look in there, I see the person's buried up to about shoulder, almost above the shoulders or so, and two people in there to help him. It's pretty rare for me to get in a, a bin with that amount of grain. I ran out of grain back tube and uh, I went to turn around to get some more beans away from the door and uh, that's when things went, went bad. I lost control of the grain back and it was down, straight down below me. And then the beans just started like caving in and I, I could just feel that pressure on my chest. And I'm like, oh, you know, th this is not good. Soon, fire departments from nearby Centerville and Albia showed up. Once everybody started converging on the scene, I'm hollering for grain bank tube. We take one section at a time, start working it around Mark. That relieves the pressure on his, on his airway. I knew he was breathing because he was talking to me. He just kept asking if I, if I was doing okay, if I could feel my legs. I'm just glad that I had my arms out. I think if they would have been down, I would have been a little more panicky. Now we're working this down. I can't get it down in there. And he's got a huge uh, eight inch vac tube, like he's holding on to us around his arm. It's up, up against his body. So that was an extreme challenge. After we were there probably an hour, I'm like, this isn't good. You know, why isn't he out? And I actually called my dad because he farms just south of where we were at. And so he actually brought his tractor and another grain back over and helped. Um, and honestly, like I was preparing for the worst. The more grain we took off of that front side, the more came from the top. And it was at that point, I realized we're going to have to cut the hole. When we started to cut the holes, we needed something on the backside because there was kind of a mountain, you know, going up to the side of the wall. So we made that relief cut. Once the holes were cut, a grain back tube come flying in through the <laughs> side. So I'm like, awesome, who did this, you know? So now we're sucking grain from both sides. and. That allowed us to get Mark free enough to get him up and get out of the grain bin. When he walked out of that grain bin, I couldn't believe it. Like, I, I was 
it was a good feeling. Farmers still operate the way they did 20, 30 years ago, but their equipment doesn't. They can get trapped 10 times faster than what they have been doing their whole life because technology's changed. I've always said it's not if, it's when, so I'm glad that the outcome was this way because I know that it definitely could have been different. What can you say to the importance of a, of a fire department, even in a community this size? If it wasn't for them, I probably wouldn't be here. Wow. Well, in that instance, quick thinking, proper training, and a grain vac ended up making that rescue a success. And Nate told me he has one major goal with these Vex Day Ever stories. And those stories do create hope, and that hope is what drives innovation, and that innovation is what increases safety and continues to save lives. So uh, it's been just such a, a fun season and interviewing these departments and hearing these stories, and hopefully it can uh, increase that awareness and save more lives. Well, another crucial piece in future rescues is the rural rescue response trailer, something that Nate designed and had manufactured after helping with that rescue in Minnesota himself. And Nate now wants other departments to have access to that rescue tool as well. So if your local fire department could use one, or if you want to help donate, you can do all of that at agrevival.com. What an amazing effort by Nate and the entire team at Bex that they've put together this year. Again, if you want to learn more or help donate, that's agrevival.com. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. From all of us at U.S. Farm Report, as well as Bex, as harvest ramps up, please be safe. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.